Let me invite you to go this morning to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through this wonderful chapter of truth about how we can have peace with God and what that peace provides for us. Years ago, uh, really uh, over 20 years ago, I got a letter, I, I think I've mentioned before, I, Dr. McCune always had a policy, if you received anonymous letters, he didn't read them, and, and uh, it's probably the, the smart way to do it, but I'm not smart, so I read them. Uh, and, and I received one, had a few complaints, um, but one of them was uh, that I had a tendency to use the word argue, right? I would argue that and then work through that, right? Then, and make the case, because I was using the word argue like, like you're trying to make a case for something. So here's the first argument, the second argument, third argument. It wasn't argue like, like a, a kind of disagreement. And they made the point, you know, the congregation doesn't want you to argue with them. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's not what I meant. And part of the reason I would use that kind of language is precisely the kind of passage we're looking at today. The Apostle Paul is making an argument, right? He has, and he's been working his way through it, and he does so with all these series of connections. Therefore, wherefore, so then... He's saying, because this is true, then we can draw this conclusion that's true as well, and it has this implication, right? And, and, and so he's making a pretty tight case, like a lawyer does, about the benefits of justification. And, and here's one of the challenges, just being open with you as a, as a preacher, our world has shifted away from that kind of thinking. Right? I mean, just think about advertising. Uh, how many times do you see an advertisement that actually tries to make an argument for why you should buy this? What it actually does is try to give you an impression, like an association. This vehicle is associated with prosperity, or this, 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 uh, vacation is tied with something else. And it, it just gives you images to try to create a sensation or a, an impression on you to move your feelings in a way that would make you predisposed towards something. And it's not, and, and practically they know they've got 30 seconds or, you know, 60 seconds to try and get their case across. And if all the thing was going across the screen was like a big text that told you all of the benefits for it and why you ought to do it, you'd, you'd probably be off to get the popcorn or something, right? They, they've, they, they have taken a, a, an approach which is not primarily an intellectual one. And, and so that's sort of dominated our world and the net result is, is that our world has started to operate that way, right? You get into a conversation and someone starts to give you all the reasons why they think it's right. And you're like, you can have your reasons, have your opinion. That's not how I feel about it, right? And that's the whole shift that's happened in our culture. So, so here's the challenge of a preacher who tries to just show us what the Bible says, is we got to lock on to arguments. 
We've got to think our way through the passage so that we can understand the truth of God because it's really the bedrock. Because when the storms of life come, you know what's going to get washed away first? Your feelings. You know what's going to stand under the storm? The truth. And whether you have believed and grasped that truth, that's what will stand. And so Paul wants us to make sure we are anchored in the truth of this. Because our assurance, the reason we can have hope even in the middle of tribulations is because of what God has done for us through Christ. That we have peace with God because we have been justified by Him, by His blood, by faith in Him, and we've been reconciled to God through Christ. It's in Him or in whom we have received the reconciliation. So when I want to rest on my security that nothing can separate me from the love of God, my whole focus turns toward Christ. He is my hope and confidence. My hope is in Him. But that obviously leads to a question, how can what somebody else did provide that for me? Right? I mean, Christ died. Christ rose again. And all of that's true, but, but how, how can He do that and I actually receive the benefit of it? And that's what he's going to answer in the second half of Romans chapter 5. He's going to work through that for us. And it's a pretty tight and, and uh, packed kind of argument. And so uh, we're not going to try and get through it all today, but I think we need to start by getting the overview of it all and then work our way out. So look, if you would, Romans chapter 5. I'd like to read from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter. And you can see the first word of verse 12, therefore. So he's drawing something out of the fact that God has done this for us through Christ. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, 
Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to etern- through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I hope you can see just by the reading of the passage that it is a fairly tightly argued passage. And, and Paul is uh, doing something here very important for us to understand by way of comparison or analogy, or if you look at the end of verse 14, by showing a relationship between Adam and Jesus Christ. Notice it says, in the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So all through the passage, there's a comparison happening between Adam and Christ. And, and that comparison is tied to how sin via Adam produced death for all and righteousness via Christ produces life. All right. And, and he's going to draw out that comparison as we work our way through it. Because that's the heart of it. In fact, look at, uh, we just read it, so I think I can hopefully point it out to you quickly, all the comparison language that is used in it. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, just as, so there's a comparison that he starts there. If you drop down to verse 15, you have the phrase, is not like, and then also much more. So there's a comparison, 16 again, not like, and in Verse 17, it's finished off much more than 18. So then as, and you go down to the middle of the verse, even so. And then verse 19, for as through the one man. Middle of the verse, even so through. And then the verse 20 says, as sin reigned, even so grace would reign. So the the whole passage is showing a comparison if I could summarize it in this way, and, and I'm just going to state it real quickly, and we're going to spend uh, a few Sundays uh, working our way through it. All in Adam are condemned with Adam. All in Christ are justified through Christ. Right? All in Adam are condemned through Adam or with Adam. And all in Christ are justified with Christ or in, through Christ would be better in that regard. Okay, that's the basic point that he's going to try and explain. How is it that the benefits of justification come to us? They come to us in Christ. And, and then it's important to understand how that happens. How was the sin of Adam affecting humanity? Is parallel to how the righteousness of Christ is redeeming the lost, right? And, and that's how he's going to unfold it. And he starts that in verse 12. And here's the key. And the reason I, I want to start by saying the whole thing is because every part of the passage has to be understood in light of the whole passage, right? And so we're going to have to go down 
into the later part of the passage to understand parts of the earlier, because that's the way the scriptures work, right? You don't, you don't just pick phrases out. You understand them in terms of how the author intended to use them. So, so we're going to deal with some things here in 12 through 14 that we get understanding from from later in the passage. Because here's the thing that the first thing that happens and why it gets a little complicated is that Paul starts with a comparison that he, he breaks off of. All right, look at, look at verse 12. Therefore, just as, but he doesn't complete the so is. Right? Look at the end of verse 12. Probably most of your translations, there's a dash there. Because what that's showing you is Paul has made the first part of the comparison, but now he actually interrupts the comparison to bring in some things to help clarify stuff, to, to address some potential objections that might come up. And he doesn't actually pick up the comparison again until all the way down in verse 18. Because there you can see it really clearly. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's basically the same thing as 12, right? So sin entered the world, death through sin, death spread to all men because all sin, right? So 18 says, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Here comes the completion of it. Even so, through the act of righteousness, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. All right, so Paul, uh, and it's a beautiful testimony to the, the nature of Scripture, right? You know, we, we, we see here Paul doing what you and I are inclined to do, right? We're talking with somebody and we make a statement, and while we make that statement, we know, wait, that, that statement could be taken in wrong directions, so we start to make sure it can't be taken in wrong directions. We add some things in, and then we come back and we sort of restate it and then bring out the implication. And that's what Paul does. Verse 12 states the first part of the comparison, and then verses 13 through 17, actually you could describe as sort of like a parenthesis in which Paul addresses some things that might come up by virtue of that. And, and so he, he does that, and then he comes back to the original point in 18 and 19, and then 20 and 21 shows some ramifications of that. All right, so, so it's, it's not unusual for humans to communicate this way, and when God speaks through humans, he uses their personality and the nature of it to communicate. And so here comes the Word of God. So what we need to do is start in verse 12, because verse 12 is really important to understand the analogy or comparison that the Apostle Paul is making. And, and there's a series of things that verse 12 states or asserts that, that are important to get this. The first is this, through one man or one person, sin entered the world. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Okay, So that might seem sort of obvious, but it's important for us to really make sure we're getting it. The world here is humanity, not creation. Right? Because sin had already occurred before Adam's sin, right? 
Satan fell. He rebelled against God because he appears in Genesis 3 that recounts for us the fall of man as already opposed to God. So world here doesn't mean creation. Through one man's sin entered into the creation. This is sin entering into humanity. Right? And it's not unusual for the Bible to use a word like that for when it says, for God so loved the world. It's not saying he loved the universe or the creation. It's he, he loved sinners, humans, right? And in 1 John 2, 2, when he says Jesus Christ's death is the, not the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, it's not talking about Mars there, right? It's talking about all of humanity. So, so what this is saying is the entry point of sin into human existence where men become guilty before God by virtue of sin was tied to the sin of Adam. That Adam acted in rebellion against God and sin entered into human experience, into the world in that regard. And that, that implies two things that I'm not going to take time to unpack, but, but I think are important for us. It implies the personal existence of a man named Adam, right? And that's important in a day where evolution undercuts that belief, right? That, that, that Adam was created by God as the head of the race, the one from which all of us spring, Acts chapter 17 says, right? So there weren't multiple human humans that evolved that then uh, spread out into all the various ethnicities of the world, but that we all share a common father, Adam, made by God, is essential to understanding this passage. Because if there wasn't an Adam, then there wasn't and Adam through which sin entered into the world. You would have to have some other explanation for what we see around us in terms of corruption and decay and condemnation than, you, than what the Bible gives an answer for. All right, and, and that's why um, that's why there's there's a great gulf fixed between what the Bible says about the origins of humanity and what evolution says about it. And you can't bridge that gulf. Right? You, can't, you can't play both sides of it and go, well, there's evolution of proto-humans and then something else happened because you end up with, in, in any way, you, you pursue those paths you end up undercutting the role of Adam, who is the source of sin in humanity. Okay, so it's not a it's not a small debate. It's not one. Um, I know this could sound strong, but I think I think when it comes down to utter undercutting the truthfulness of the Bible, and ultimately what the Bible teaches us about sin and salvation, it's not something about which good Christians can just disagree. Right? This is something that's fundamental to an understanding of the Bible. 
that God created humans in his image and did so by a direct act as the Bible declares. And therefore the source of sin is found right there at man's original rebellion against God. The second thing it implies is that there is a certain role that Adam had which was different than any other humans. Because if you know the storyline of Genesis 3, Eve disobeys God first. But her sin is not counted as the entry point for sin into humanity. Because Adam has a unique relationship and responsibility as the head of the race. And so it's marked out as his sin by which sin enters into the world. And and there's a lot, I think, of downstream ramifications of that when the scriptures start to unpack relationships between the genders, functions in the home and in the church. And, And that's because there's a divinely order, a divinely designed order And again, I would say that people who try to to fight against that for whatever reason are fighting against the very fabric of how God created humanity. We all bear his image. There is no essential difference between male and female in the regard of the image bearing, but there clearly is a difference by virtue of the responsibility of the headship of Adam. He is the one who's counted as the one through whom sin entered into the world. And and that's, that's important to recognize it. The second affirmation, look in verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and here it comes, and death through sin. Really, uh, that's you have you, you should read it. I think it, I think we all may automatically do, but it's sin entered the world, death entered the world through sin. Right? That's the that's the the idea you pick up as you come through. So so death entered the world through sin. Uh, and death here, I think in this passage, is larger than just physical death. I mean, it is true that physical death came into the world because of sin, but this is speaking of something larger than that because we see the opposite of it. Look down to verse 21. What is it? What comes through Jesus Christ? Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, So when we talk about what happened in Adam, right? Adam sinned and sin entered in the world. And when sin entered the world, death came. That that death was more more than just the physical consequence of disobedience. It was actually first and foremost a spiritual death that was an alienation from God. And the Bible speaks about it in those terms, that we are cut off from the life of God or alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us, that is ignorant of God, hardness of heart, 
darkness of the soul, that there is the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And, and Paul was speaking that in Ephesians 2 to people who were alive enough to have read it. <laughs> right? They're physically alive. But he's talking about a kind of death which is true of those who are physically alive. They're spiritually dead. They're alienated from the life of God. They're separated from God by virtue of sin. Right? That brought along with it physical death. Right? God told Adam, you're from dust, to dust you will return. So there is a physical component of the consequence of sin that is connected to mortality. Right? We, we are subject to death by virtue of sin. And, and that's why the Scriptures also talk about a third dimension, of it, because ultimately death is separation. Spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. Physical death, the separation of the spirit from the body. Eternal death, or described in the book of Revelation as the second death, is the permanent separation of the person, body and soul from God. Right? The eternal death is judgment under God, which separates a person eternally from God, both spirit and body. There, there is a, a uh, resurrection to condemnation. Right? And, and so the reality of it is, is that this death that he's talking about is in its fullest dimension. That, that we, we live in a world where people are born into this world under a condemnation, a sentence of death, which is, is in, in terms of the text, its fullest comprehension. It's not just physical death, it's spiritual death, and it's potentially eternal death, separation from God. Because he counters it with life. Right? He, he talks about righteousness to life, and he talks about eternal life. And, and those things are the flip side of it, and therefore we understand it. But notice also it's described in verse 16, this death as a judgment or a penalty for Adam's sin. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment, right? That's the death. The judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So, so the death here is viewed as a penalty for Adam's sin, judgment and condemnation. Paul will pick up the same kind of concept in chapter 6, verse 23, that many of you know. For the wages of sin is death. Right? There's a, there's a sentence of judgment or condemnation that came upon humanity because of sin. We're dead, and that's the judging hand of God and the ultimate condemnation that comes with it. Here comes the third affirmation if you go back to verse 12. And so death spread to all men or all people because all sinned. All right, so the third, first is through one man's sin entered the world. The second is death entered the world through sin. The third is death spread to all people because all sin. 
The penalty for Adam's sin is universal. Death spread to all. Uh, Hebrews says it this way, it's appointed unto man once to die. All right, so, so there's no, there's no, no escaping it. Right? It's, it's universal. It's spread to all. And, and that's important to remember because it's larger than physical death. Right? There is a spiritual death that is upon all the children of Adam. Right? There's a death that has gone to all. And the reason for universal death is universal sin. The, the connection there at the end of verse 12, because all sin. So, so Adam is the one through whom sin entered the world. When sin came into the world, death came. Death spread to all because all sinned. All right? And that's, that's the, I mean, that's the pretty straightforward argument. This is where you get a lot of different answers as to how that last phrase fits. What does it mean that we all sin? Okay, now it's clearly true from the scriptures that we are all sinners. Back in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, so it's, it's a given, right, that all are sinners, that we actually have chosen to go our own way, to disobey the command of God, to not do what God has told us to do. But that's not the point of this phrase. Right? It doesn't say death spread to all men because we are all sinners. It says death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? So it's not saying Adam brought death in the world, death spread to all, and it affects you because you're a sinner too. You're sinning. Right? It's actually tying the death that spread to all back up to the sin of Adam that we all sinned in some way in Adam's sin. And, and he's going to show us that by trying to make clear the relationship that we have to Adam in this. All right, So don't hear me say we're not sinners. We are. Okay? You probably hear me say we're sinners a lot. So just, you know, it's true. We're sinners. But what he's focusing on is the fact that this death came... Because of Adam's sin, and we were involved in Adam's sin in some way. All right? And that's why you can say sinned versus sinning or sinners. And that's the point of verses 13 and 14, which are incredibly complex. But let me just read them again and, and help you understand how they would fall here, right? Because all sin, dash, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And there's a, there's a lot of debate about these verses, but here's what's clear, right? The law in verse 13 is the Mosaic law because he says from Adam until Moses, right? So he's talking about in terms of the Mosaic Law, and, and uh, I think he's most likely referencing the fact that that law that prescribes a death penalty 
right? You have a number of those in the Mosaic Law. And what was told Adam was that. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die, right? He was given a law that had a penalty attached to it that was death. The Mosaic Law had a number of laws, the penalty of which was death. But between Adam and Moses, there was still sin happening and there was still death happening with a different kind of rule of life. Right? And, and in fact, people who didn't sin like Adam sinned still died. Right? So here, that's the problem with saying, we all sinned as being, well, we're all sinners. Because he makes in the very next few verses, the point was, well, there's people who died who didn't sin like Adam sinned. So death reigned. Well, how could death reign from Adam to Moses? It was because of the sin of Adam. Right? Adam's sin is what introduced the reign of death. In fact, look at he says that very clearly, right? In at the end of verse uh, twenty-one or beginning of verse twenty-one, so that as sin reigned in death, so the death, uh, the reign of sin was resulting in death. Look at verse seventeen. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, right? So, so the one there is Adam. And death reigned through Adam because of sin. And that was true from Adam up to Moses. So don't think that capital punishment is only, in terms of eternal judgment of death for sin, is only something fixed in the law of Moses. It's actually something that goes all the way back to Adam, and by virtue of relationship to Adam, Death reign. That's, that's, I think, the point that he's making in those two verses. But also, if you take the end of verse 12 as saying, because we're all sinners, then it, it uh, I mean, I don't think this is too strong of a word, right? It, it basically destroys the analogy with justification. Because here's what's going on, right? The, the analogy on the Adam side is Adam sinned, condemnation came. Right? And the result of that was death. And, and so that death is ours because of Adam's sin. If you pull that out and go, well, Adam sinned, death came, but we die because we sinned. Then when Paul jumps over to the analogy and goes, Christ obeyed, which provided righteousness, which you benefit from because you're righteous? No, that's not what Paul says at all. He says you benefit from the righteousness of Christ because it's His righteousness imputed to you, counted to you. It doesn't go... Christ was righteous, provided righteousness, and we, we participate in it because we're righteous. But that would have to be the analogy if you go, Adam sinned, we're condemned, we participate in the condemnation because we're sinners. It's just the opposite of that. We actually are under the condemnation because of our relationship to Adam. 
It's the sin that Adam committed that brings our condemnation. And it is accounted to us. And therefore, we're guilty before God, and we will pay the penalty of that. The analogy comes over to Christ. And and so if you take the last part of that verse and shift it to we are sinners, you've destroyed the whole point of Paul's comparison. You basically just unplugged it. And and that's not, in fact, the way in which uh, Paul would be arguing. But but even more specifically, look at verses 18 and 19, because here's, here's where you see the comparison fully. Right, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Look at verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, do you see what Paul does? It's one man's transgression leads to everybody's condemnation. One man's disobedience results in everybody being made or constituted, counted as a sinner. And the reason I say counted as a sinner is because it has to be that, if you look at the flip side of verse 19, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made, really counted as righteous, appointed as righteous. It's talking about justification. So, so it's clear, okay, don't miss it. We are all sinners. But this passage, that last part of that verse is not saying that, that sin entered the world, death came with sin, death spread to all because all were sinners. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying because all sinned in some way in relationship to Adam. Adam's sin was our sin. That's what the text is saying. So that leads to the, you know, the big, the, you know, the wrestling through. In what way is this corporate, if I could put it, that connection to Adam? How are we in solidarity with him? How is it that he could be, in this sense, the, the head of an entity of humanity and we are in him in that way. And there's, there's numbers of ways that people try to answer that. The two that probably would be most important for us is one tries to see it in a realistic kind of way. That, that in fact, because we are all descendants of Adam, we were in some way actually in Adam and participating in the sin. Okay, And, and, and again, I'd say absolutely true, we are, we are all the descendants of Adam. We all come from him. But here's the tension. This way of doing it is trying to avoid what it perceives to be an unfairness. Right? And some of you might be feeling that sense of unfairness. Right? I'm, I'm condemned because of what Adam did. Well, that's not fair. How can I be condemned because of what Adam did? So the way they try to resolve that is somehow take me and push me all the way up the genetic line to actually be inside of Adam in some way. That since I'm the descendant of Adam, I was present in Adam, and act, therefore I actually participated in the sin. Right? But the, the problem with that is, 
is that I wouldn't have been in Adam as a person, right? And, and person sin. So, so to have me somehow impersonally in Adam and then be responsible for personal sin doesn't really solve the problem at all. And in fact, it opens up another problem over here because does that mean then the credit I get for Christ's righteousness because I'm in Christ means somehow I was actually in Christ doing the righteousness? Right? I mean, I, I wasn't in Christ in that way. I didn't come out of Christ and therefore uh, have that relationship to him. So, so you'd end up be setting up an analogy that goes, well, this one's like this, but, but forget that now. This one's like this. It doesn't work that way. We, we were not, we are in Adam. We are descendants of Adam. We have all sprung from Adam, but that's not why we have the guilt that somehow we, we actually sin personally in Adam. So the better way of understanding it is that he is the representative of the human race. He's the head of all humanity by virtue of his creation. And his act became the act of humans. It was, in fact... A, a rebellion against the Creator that actually we sinned or were constituted as sinners because of our relationship to Adam, right? And again, I'd, I'd say the reason why the one, the realistic kind of view doesn't cut it is precisely because, partly because of 13 and 14 again, right? It's, it's actually showing a difference between the sin of Adam and the sin of other people that brought death. So, so if they were actually doing the sin in Adam, 13 and 14, again, mean nothing, right? Nevertheless, death reigned. So, so the reality is there must be a hard distinction that he's making here that shows that it is actually the sin of Adam as my representative that provides the condemnation. Or to, to boil it down to as simple as what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. Right? Adam sinned. Death is the consequence of sin. He's my representative as a human. And in Adam all die. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm walking through it a little slowly because I know, I know because of how I've, over the years, wrestled, worked through the Scriptures, uh, that, that that's, that's an uncomfortable concept for us. Especially in a culture that has very little sense of corporate solidarity. We, ha we, we all stand before God on our own merits, it's me, right? And, and so for someone else to be a representative in such a way that brings me condemnation, there's something about that in our hearts as sinners and I think in our cultural fabric that just doesn't sit well with that. All right, but here's the thing we've got to recognize. We actually love that truth over here. 
I mean, we love the fact that, that Jesus Christ obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness and died. And I get the credit or benefits of his righteousness. That the righteousness that I need before God is not something in me, but is actually something exterior to me, objective in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that my hope and trust and confidence is not in any subjective state of my life. It's not in anything in me, but I rely entirely and completely on the fact that there is one that God has accepted because his righteousness is absolutely perfect and that righteousness can be counted to me because he is the last Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the one stands in parallel to the first Adam, 14c, right? He was the type of the one who was to come. And, and here's the thing, we've got to recognize that we don't fully appreciate what Christ did for us over there unless we fully appreciate the situation in which we find ourselves. Right? That we are guilty before God. And there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do to, to, to remove that guilt to free ourselves from the condemnation, to somehow pay back the debt. We need a righteousness which is not our own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need to have someone who would be our head who could represent us before God in such a way that we would actually be accepted by God. And that's Jesus. Through the one transgression came condemnation. Through the one act of obedience came righteousness and justification. Through the one came death. Through the one, capital O, came life. That that this is reality in terms of where we stand before God. And it doesn't deny that Adam's sin became the source of our depravity. It did. We actually are corrupted via the fall of man, and that's passed along to us through, through our relationship to Adam as his descendants. It doesn't deny any of that. It teaches us that we incurred guilt and penalty for that guilt from our relationship to Adam. That he is our representative, and therefore he brought condemnation on us. So here, here's where we need to grasp the concepts, right? Sometimes we talk about this in doctrinal terms as alien guilt, right? Guilt that is actually from outside of me, the guilt of Adam. And we sort of bristle at the concept of alien guilt but we love the concept of alien righteousness. That I have a righteousness that's from outside of me that is the righteousness of Christ. And we, we cannot pick and choose the truth of God which we will accept. 
Our job is to receive what God has said and think what God has because the hope, the bedrock, I mean, the absolute foundation and bedrock of genuine gospel hope is that the righteousness of Christ is something outside of me, that it is set. He has done it, right? It's complete, nothing to be added to it. Nothing can ever be taken away from it. It is the finished work of Christ that is my only hope in life and death. And it's by virtue of relationship to Christ that that is credited to my account. It's given to me as a gift. Notice the language that Paul uses to describe this, right? The first part of verse 15, the free gift, Right. Look later in the verse, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. End of verse 16, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Notice the language of verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, here's the key, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So, everyone in this room was born as a child of Adam. Born condemned because of the sin of Adam. Not necessarily everyone in this room is, in fact, a beneficiary of the gift of Christ's righteousness. Right? There is something that has to happen. And that text described it as those who receive. Those who receive the gift. Because remember, Romans chapter 5 follows chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And the whole argument of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 is that God created us. We're all sinners, rebelled against God. God has made a way for us to be right with Him through the righteousness of God, which is received by faith. That is, you trust in Christ. You receive the gift of Christ's righteousness, and you do so by faith. So then, credited to your account is a righteousness which cannot be tarnished, cannot be diminished, that the Father will recognize the righteousness of His Son and will welcome all who have Christ as their head into eternal life. That's the glory of the gospel, that we have a Christ who can save us because of what he did. And our hope isn't in what we do. Our hope is in what he did. He is our righteousness. And we can look to him and have complete and perfect acceptance with God. It is all in Christ. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for sending your son who walked in perfect obedience did all that was necessary to fulfill the law 
in both its positive demands and also in paying its penalty. And you accepted his offering and vindicated him by raising him from the dead, exalting him to your right hand and holding him out as both Lord and Christ, the one in whose name is found forgiveness of sins, the one in whom salvation is found. And because it's in him, it's a sure and unshakable foundation on which we can stand. Lord, we know in our heart, deep in our heart, that we're sinners. We fall short of your glory. And if we look in ourselves for an answer, nothing but despair will come of it. We can try and talk ourselves into thinking we're good enough, but we know when we put our pillow on our head that we have failed and fallen short. We have sinned in commission and in omission. Our hope cannot be in ourselves. Our hope cannot be in our performance. It must be in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, please put that deep in our hearts that our only hope of confident assurance is found in Christ and Christ alone because of what he has done in his life and death and what he promises at his return that he will save us from the wrath to come. Lord, work in hearts this morning to bring to, to conviction about that truth those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. And for those of us who have called Christ our Lord and Savior, that we might find our confident assurance outside of ourselves in Him, in what He has done, and rest there in the midst of this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.